Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Dun, 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 da, da, dun, 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 da, da, dun, dun, dun. Episode 27 is here, loud and proud. We're ready to bring the noise. Andy, Philippe, are you ready to talk 2v2s, but specifically the conditions that we use within the 2v2 to create the type of players and habits within players that we want? I was ready, but then you had that corny intro and it just deflated my balloon completely. <laughs> I feel like that's the intro you always would lead into practice with when you started singing Another One Bites the Dust or whatever you were going on about. Yeah, I was younger and crazier back then. You know, <laughs> These days it's like a requiem or a mass you know, going into practice. <laughs> I don't think that's the very inspiring for the kids, but... <laughs> <laughs> we are here. We are here for episode twenty-seven. Um, uh, we are excited to talk about the conditions that we use in two v twos. Two v twos is, I think, genuinely my favorite piece of kind of the um, the 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 wallpaper in Legends coaching curriculum and and and. and sessions that we run. I absolutely love 2v2s. I love the creativity that that exists within them. And we're going to talk about it. And I'm kind of excited about that. But before we go there, we should mention that this is the last time we're going to see Andy for 17 days. Yes. And we're squeezing this one in despite him having a transatlantic flight this afternoon. Yep. It's uh, it's going to be an interesting trip. You know, my... my uh, unfortunately, you know, by the time this drops, uh, I'll already be, uh, you know, uh, Ollie would have done the, the charity walk that uh, we're doing for my cousin Duncan. You know, he's unfortunately been given some recently some bad news after fighting cancer for multiple years. And it spread to four different areas in his body. And so, you know, it is officially now terminal. And But typical for my cousin, you know, he's just said, uh, no big deal, let's do a charity walk. You know, and raise money for cancer research, and and so uh, you know, as far as I can tell, hundreds of people are going to be doing this walk and raising money, and he's already raised thirteen thousand plus pounds, you know, and it's on its way, I believe, to twenty thousand pounds or more, you know, the way it's looking, which, you know, he's he's just refused to let down, you know, during this phase when he's been fighting cancer, and he, you know, he's been an inspiration to many, many hundreds, many, you know, maybe thousands of people. You know, so we're all getting together to do this walk with him, and and so that's the reason for me going over there. But I'm also really excited because uh, you know, and this is you know my passion for life, this game. But I've been a Legion United supporter since I was about eight years of age, and you know, I I managed to luck into some sweet tickets for the Norman Hunter Suite. S W E E T or S U I T E. S U I T E. Wow. We're not talking about candy. Wow. Sweet <laughs> <Sorry>. tickets. <laughs> yeah. And uh and and the um the cool thing is that this is where the man of the match award is done after the game, you know, and so I've never been to Ellen Road, the home of Leeds United. Never, not once. Well, I, I went there much to chagrin of the woman I was with, you know, and I, I I forced her to come with me and actually walk around the ground in the middle of the week one time. <laughs> 
when <laughs> in the summer when we were in Leeds and look at the terracing, you know, which, you know, I found fascinating, but her not so much, you know. And <laughs> she probably drug you to some architecture of some old cathedral, so it, it evens out. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. You know. <laughs> and beaches she dragged me to, and, you know, look at me, I'm white. I, I go pink and peel. You know, beaches and I don't get along. And you have the ugliest feet I've ever seen, so you got to keep them covered. <laughs> You're not joking on that one. Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> is, is Andy a hobbit? <laughs> I mean, imagine an ogre's feet. The only difference between Andy's feet and an ogre's feet is Andy's aren't green. <laughs> the ogre's feet are way, way prettier than my feet. You know, and, uh, but but I only have met. I, I don't think I've actually met Duncan in person ever. But I know him through social media, and uh-huh. he's a ray of sunshine. Just enthusiastic, wanting to make those around him um, uh, better, happier. Um, he brings just a, a, a positive outlook on life through social media that is notable and remarkable, and it's different than other people that I follow on social media. Um, but let's bring it into soccer because cause Duncan's a soccer guy, right? Oh, yeah. You know, Duncan and I, you know, we, we grew up in a soccer family. We both played for, uh, for Oxford City together. And, you know, Duncan, in fact, the walk is starting from the, uh, the Whitney Town Ground where he played, you know, when he was younger. I never played for Whitney. He did. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's ending at the new Oxford City Ground where we both played. Um, but we played at the old Oxford City Ground before it was torn down. You know, and and so you know we we're starting at, at you know one of the most famous grounds in Oxfordshire, and we're ending you know at the the new ground of one of the most famous clubs historically in Oxford. Very you know? cool. And so uh, and you know as far as I can tell, there's going to be you know fifty to a hundred you know soccer guys that are going to be doing the walk. Old players. Old players. Okay. That are going to be accompanying Duncan on the walk. You yeah. Know? So you know this is going to be a you know a massive reunion of sorts for everybody. You know, and Duncan, through all his trials and tribulations, has taken this as a challenge to save other people's lives, yeah, yeah. to make people more aware, to get early testing. Because had he have got early testing, you know, they found his cancer when it was stage four. But had they have got, you know, he got tested when it was stage one or two, it wouldn't have been a big deal. And he would have probably beaten it fairly easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing's easy with cancer, but, you know, a lot easier than, than it has been. And obviously it's now terminal. You know, so he's taken this as his mission to spread the word for early testing so that nobody has to go through what he's gone through, you know, you know, whilst he's been battling this horrible disease. So 17 days in England, you, you start out with the charity walk, then you move to the suite at Ellen Road. Right. And then you're headed toward um, episode two. For those listeners that haven't yet listened to episode two, I reference it often. You should listen to it again because Andy's going to go do it in person. You're going to go to Ashington, England. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. All the research I've done on Ashington, you know, which has been a huge part of, of confirming my beliefs that that great soccer is learned under pressure in tight circumstances with lots of bodies, you know, and, and intense competition, you know, and uh, all of my reading around the game, you know, led me to uh, realize that Ashington, England was possibly the greatest of the world soccer hotbeds, you know, and nobody had spotted this, you know, until I started. This connecting. was your Malcolm Gladwell moment. Yeah, this, you know, and so, uh, I connected the dots between, uh, you know, the Munich air disaster, you know, where Bobby Charlton nearly lost his life and a whole bunch of his teammates did get killed. Uh, and, you know, his upbringing in Ashington because he and his brother both played for England and together won the World Cup, which has never happened in any other family, any other country, any other team that's won the World Cup. 
you know, and then delving deeper, you know, found out that, you know, his uncle, uh, you know, was the centre forward for England, you know, and just a, a, a top goal scorer, Jackie Milburn. And another one of his um, neighbours who grew up on the same street in Ashington when they were kids, Jimmy Adamson, uh, all three of them, the two Charlton brothers at Adamson, won the Professional Football Writers Player of the Year Award, which was the only Player of the Year Award yeah. you know, back then in the 60s. You know, and so you know, with all of those things and the realisation that that had occurred, I started looking into why maybe Ashington was a bit special. And it turned out that Ashington was the perfect environment for developing incredible foot skills, incredible competitiveness, mm. you know, finishing skills, you know, and, you know, the whole mentality. And there had been, out of 72 famous people, 44 of those famous people from a town that was never more than 30,000 people, uh, 42 actually ended up in the, in the professional soccer game. And many of them, you know, as EPL players, what was the old Division One in those days and is now the EPL, they played at the highest level of, you know, not just the British game, but the world game. You know? but, but then the rate of, of professional footballers coming out of Ashington, England, fell off a cliff once cars started parking on the streets that these players developed in. Yeah, it, it took away the environment that yep. those great players, you know, developed their skills, their intensity, you know, because, you know, that tight, fast environment all of a sudden disappeared because, you know, the car owners had, you know, car pride. Yeah, yeah. And they yeah. wouldn't let the kids, you know, be kicking the balls around their cars because obviously the cars would get damaged. The uh, uh, After we after that episode came out, we're going to transition to 2v2s here in a minute, but it's worth you guys going back and listening to the episode, even if you listen to it again. But after that episode came out, I had a Twitter exchange with... Um, a director of like the 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 youth football program in Northumbria or something, um, in in Ashington, and he goes, you know what, you guys just put into words something that I guess I knew but had never put together, and he goes, and like I grew up playing on I, I grew up playing in Ashington, but I never played on the streets, and that was a difference for me is that it didn't create for me what perhaps it could have done. Um, had we been aware that that is the environment that we were missing. But he goes, it makes perfect sense. This is exactly uh, what, what took place in, in, in Ashington. So. Yeah, and it's interesting because it doesn't matter what sport, what environment, uh, you know, and, and the expertise it develops. But usually when you find a clutch of, of people that are really good at something, uh, especially across a couple of generations, uh, and, you know, they're all from the same area, Something in that environment is the thing that made them really good at what they're good at. And it's not typically the water, but there's something in the uh, water. But it is in surfing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you know, so, you know, I read, recently read a book about, you know, about surfing, uh, written by a guy that grew up in Southern California, then moved to Hawaii. And, you know, the culture is so rich and so deep in surfing you know, that uh, you can see why it is that these areas of the world produce the best surfers, you know, and, you know, Philippe and I were recently talking about surfing in Brazil, you know, and... You guys are going on a surf trip to Brazil without me? <laughs> no, I wish. But it's it's crazy. Like, Brazil had never had a world uh, champion of surfing until 2014. So that's, what, uh, eight years ago? No, nine years ago uh, in terms of uh, competitions. And since then, out of the last nine we won seven and like there were four different three or four different guys winning so like that's unheard of like we never won and then out of the blue boom nine in out of the last nine seven uh championships and they're all with 
you know, from the same areas. They leave. Uh, there's one beach that is near in, uh, near São Paulo called Maresias. So there's a couple from there, a couple from Rio, and a couple of the from the northeast. And I mean, it's just they're just developing so much, so many suffers. Now, why did it not happen many, many, many years ago? Well, it didn't really pay much at those times, and people need money, especially in Brazil, so it wasn't really a career path. But once it took off, and, you know, the started, Brazil started having, like, surf channels and blah, 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 and actually the, the, the tours, uh, the surf tours uh, started going to Brazil as well, I mean, and the sponsorship money and all that took off. People started like, okay, that's a career path, and then start, you know, taking advantage of it. And I mean, it's it's it just took off. So it's it's it's, it's like we're saying when when things start happening, they start happening for a reason. So sure. Sure, so, sure. so you know, the, we just talked about culture there. You know, the you know it took off. You know, the culture grew, but what what in the first place allowed the culture to grow? And, and this is the thing that a lot of people miss is that, you know, all the world champions in, in history in surfing come from, you know, lately Brazil, but previous to that, Hawaii or Australia, Australia, Hawaii, Southern California. Why? Weather, beaches, big waves. Yeah. You know, it's the power of the environment. You know, and so, you know, and we discount far too much the power of the environment. Sure. You know, and Brazil have been incredible at soccer, you know, and Philippe has lived this, and I'm envious of Philippe that he's lived this, because of the favela soccer, the power of the environment. You know, and, and once again, the weather's there, so they can get outdoors, they can play in the streets year-round, you know, and it's small-sided, and they play with tiny balls and cans and stones, like Philippe's described. You know, a lot of times they play barefoot, and develop most the of the times, <laughs> yeah, and you know, and so you know, the environment is so conducive to the game. It's twenty four seven. It's a passion of the culture, you know, and these people develop incredible ability, you know, and you know, that's here what we're primarily to talk about is creating an environment, but also create an environment that works from the most difficult back into the easier skills. One of the things that, uh, you know, getting into the serious stuff here, you know, that, uh, that I, I really believe is at the core of what we're talking about and has allowed us to develop a very unique philosophy of the game in modern times, you know, but only because it was a very common philosophy of the game in decades past and produced all the world's great players. So our philosophy is not unique. It's not original. It's stolen from where the best lessons have been learned in world history in soccer. And we have to go back there. We have to create environments and cultures where the kids are playing, you know, the hardest form of the game under pressure. But they're doing it organically, you know, so that they develop these incredible skills. But they're doing it organically a lot of the time, but to a plan. You know, which is the opposite of organic, right? You know, it's organic, it happens naturally, but then there's the plan, which is vital because we figured out how to emphasize the right skills so that we develop world beaters as players. You know, and, and that's the key to what we're talking about here. Does that make sense? We talk about this often, that, that, that the environments that the world's best came came up in oftentimes was organic like it wasn't with a plan but we 
here in, in Kansas City, in the United States of America, or really in all corners of the world now, our kid, we're competing with so many other <clears throat> interests that kids can have, whether it be other sports or, or academics or more homework or, or, or video games or whatever it might be. And if we don't create that environment with a specific master plan on the backside of it, then, then our players aren't going to get it. And I've said numerous times, but I love saying it's like one of my favorite sayings is, I'm never going to go drop my kids off in downtown Kansas City at 5 o'clock and say, I'll pick you up at 8, find a game to hop into. And if this facility didn't exist, if the facility in Lee Summit didn't exist, my kids would never have access to an environment that ever comes even close to replicating the favelas of Brazil, the streets of Ashington, England, right? The, the, um, the areas in Iceland, I don't know what the name is, we've not done an episode on it, but Iceland went out and artificially created these spaces, which was on the front end of their meteoric rise, um, in world football. And, and, and I think that's the point that's oftentimes missed. Yeah, and, and let me read to you this, this uh, article. And this is from when Scotland was a, a world power in soccer. So When is, was that? This early is, days. Early, <laughs> early days. They were the passers. England were the kickers. Yeah, the, you know, they, they beat the Dutch in, in, you know, it was held in South America somewhere. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, they, they were, Archie Gamble was midfielder, left-footed midfielder, was phenomenal with the ball at his feet. But uh, Andy Roxburgh um, was the uh, ex-Scottish national team coach and, and uh, a UEFA technical director. And uh, he, he, he wrote this, uh, in many parts of Europe, street football has all but disappeared, but the philosophy and the mentality remains valid. The street game was player-centered, competitive, skillful, and fair. And the small-sided game with one-on-one a key element was the basic form of play. Youngsters practiced for hours on tricks and on passing and on shooting techniques, using a wall as their silent partner. A love for football permeated all activities and cups and medals, in parentheses, extrinsic motivation, had no immediate significance for the fierce young dreamers who were dedicated to the ball and lost in the romance of the game. I love that. <laughs> lost in the romance. I lost myself many times as a kid in the romance of the game. You know, just I'm phenomenal. glad you added game there on the end. Yeah. <laughs> and football leaders are acutely aware that the loss of the street environment, particularly in industrial regions, has provoked a greater need for training facilities, free play areas, and appropriate equipment. But equally, there is an increasing demand for well-educated coaches who have the specific knowledge and the ability to work with young players. Just as the smart referee knows the difference between a foul, a dive, and a legitimate tackle, so the sensitive youth coach understands when to drill, when to teach creatively, and when to encourage self-reliance and free expression. And that last sentence is what we need to focus on when to encourage self-reliance and free expression. Because we can do that in an organized way. We can actually create, you know, we've created an environment here in Kansas City. We've got a very deep philosophy that's been successful for decades, you know, and, you know, there's no need for us just to step back away from the environment. We need to be passionately involved with the environment to make sure that the kids are, are using and developing the most difficult skills of the game, which is finishing from distance with accuracy and power and the one-on-one skills or the one-on-two or the one-on-three skills, you know, that we see 
in the clips that we were viewing before this podcast, you know, where the Brazilian players are literally faced by four or five defenders and the famous photo of Diego Maradona, you know, where there's literally six defenders in the background. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and how are our kids going to get to be that good unless we're creating an environment that can reproduce that specific circumstance. And let's let's use this as a segue into the heart of our discussion, right? So like hopefully this this intro has has put in front of you as a listener the importance of of, of creative environments and, and, and small sided play, right? And two V twos is at the crux of that for us. But let me give a quick little kind of thirty thousand uh, uh, feet view of our training approach, right? The beginning is 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 centered around teaching the technical skills that we want our players to to learn in a uh, oftentimes slow and very deliberate manner, right? And whether that's the, the six maestro skills or the, the, the shot, right? And what, what technique goes into a shot. And then we move as kids start to become more comfortable under pressure with those specific skills. We move into a 1v1 phase of development. People often ask us to put age groups on these different phases of development. And, and you can't because you move from one to the next when the kids have gotten to a certain level of proficiency with what you're working on. But 1v1s is the next phase of development where every 1v1 is happening simultaneously. We've got numerous episodes on this this specific theme. And then we move from there into a 2v2 stage of development. And those two stages will cross over for a while until kids get older and older and older. And then it becomes more 2v2, less 1v1. Um, at least that was my experience growing up. Philippe, your 09s are a fantastic team full of... Um, truly, uh, remarkably um, creative uh, players. I would imagine that you're probably more in a 2v2 stage than a 1v1 stage with that group. Is that fair? Yeah. When you first saw 2v2s, right, when you first came to our facility for whatever reason that initially brought you here and you saw two, some of the 2v2s in action, what were some of your first initial thoughts? Um, and did you notice any specific conditions that the coaches were implementing in the sessions? Well, first I thought it was very chaotic, and I loved it because of that. Uh, because one of the things in the way we do it, it's the simple runs sometimes are easy to defend because there's so much traffic that the simple run, it's not like the defender is covering that, but like the other games are covering that because there's not much space. So the players literally need to think completely outside of the box one of the things that you learn when you play street soccer in Brazil is how to make counter movements. So, for example, I pass the ball to my teammate. I take two steps that way, like I'm running that way, soon, so the defender starts running that way, but I take those two steps quick and I move the other direction, stuff like that. If you don't do that kind of stuff in 2v2, you don't get the ball. If you just play the ball and just go and overlap, like it's too obvious and it's easy to defend and the space sometimes is not there. So you literally need to create space, make counter movements to lose your defender and stuff like that because you're the only defender that, you know, besides the cover on the ball, you're the only other player that the defender needs to worry about. So just like the necessity of thinking outside of the box in terms of movement. And here's the thing. I teach my kids ideas of how to make those movements, but at the end of the day, they teach themselves. They organically. They see that what they're doing, it's not allowing them to get the ball. So they start thinking, how can I do that differently? How can I fake this defender? How can I find space if there's so much crowded space and the overlap is not open? 
So that was what l- really made me be like, wow, this is this is good. And in terms of condition, um, the um, fake can move within two. Um, so basically the kid uh, is allowed to take one touch to control the ball. Their second touch must be a pass, a shot, or a beginning of a skill. And if they start that, that skill and complete that skill, they get unlimited touches after that. So our kids are getting the ball, and it's our version of playing two-touch. But it's not two-touch because they're not mandated. A lot. The most frustrating thing that happened in, and still does when I play this kind of stuff is you. the ball is coming to you like waist high, and there's nothing you can do but control that ball. But then you don't have the pass open, and it's an automatic turnover. But you could, if you have more touches, keep that ball and keep possession. That's the most frustrating thing for me when I'm playing and when I played in college, when I mean in my whole career. So allowing the kid to control that ball, begin a skill, begin a fake, and then keep dribbling, you're actually not limiting the creativity of that kid. You're simulating, yeah, you play you play two touch when it's needed and to play fast so you can make a run and get the ball back. But also, when needed, you can do a fake or a move, okay? Which you can't. You can't take that away from a kid in a game. You can't. You can't. You just can't. Two can touch I, can and I, one touch is playing the way you face, and playing your way the, the way you face is not what great players do. Great players break lines by being deceptive and creative, and so. The the negative to just allowing kids to dribble all practice every practice is if you don't uh, if you don't institutionalize if you don't make intuitive within your condition condition play you can have players with a really slow speed of play meaning they don't decide what they're going to do until they get the ball but if you implement this specific condition which is the first condition it feels like any coach in our club implements one touch two touch or a fake and move within two. It means that the speed of play is super high because you can't take a touch and then decide what you're going to do. You, before receive the ball, have to already decide, am I going with this penetrating pass next? Am I going to take a touch and bend it around the defender and put it in the far corner of the net? Or am I going to take a touch, fake shot, L-turn, explode into space, and then make my decision? And, the def- and on the defensive side, once the kid, the attacking player receives the ball, does the skill and gets the unlimited touch, the defender goes like, crap. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it, it also gives that, you know, advantage when you're able to find a space, do a skill, okay, create some space. Now you got the unlimited touches. So now they have to close you down more because you can do more skill and create something. And then that opens up a pass. If you know that, if the guy takes a touch, you know he's passing. And you pretty much in a two, especially in 2v2, he can only pass one way. Right, yeah, there's yeah, yeah. only one person to pass the ball to, so it's it becomes too easy. So can, I, can, I thought can, that. Con, con, uh, can I can I get even more controversial here? Sure, <laughs> I had a question I, for I, you. I, but I, I grew up playing one and two touch soccer. Yeah, it is the most asinine, stupidest approach to conditioning a game that you can ever do because you know you you literally discount what made the great players in world history great when you do it you know and so you're conditioning people to be absolutely the opposite of great to hot potato the ball and the reason it's so asinine is there are many many situations when you're playing one and two touch soccer where it's not the right time to pass the ball comes to you 
and nobody on your team is open, you know, because defenders are just too good at tracking, you know, the, the attacking players, your teammates, you know, and so your teammates haven't been able to lose their defender. The game is constantly shifting. So at the time the ball arrives, you don't have an option to pass the ball that is really viable. But when the coach imposes a one and two touch condition, they're forcing you to give a pass at the wrong time. Get rid of the ball. Pretty much. Well, you know, yeah, dump it. You know, just, you know, have literally no confidence in your own skill. Pass the responsibility. It. It's, but it's, it's not just passing the responsibility. It's giving away possession, you know. And so, and then the coach crabs because the players didn't get open. I'm sorry, but sometimes defenders are just too good. You cannot always get open if you're a forward. You know, if you're playing against the best defenders in the world, you know, you're going to be marked really tight and a ball to your feet in those circumstances is going to be a hospital pass where, you know, the, the, the next thing is going to be you're going to be tackled from behind, you know, and you're going to get clattered because it was a terrible pass in the first place. But how, many, how many times you're playing a tar like a target? Let's say you're playing against Virgil van Dijk and you play a, pen, a pass to the striker with his back turn, he most likely will need one touch, depending on how that ball is coming, to s just settle the ball with Virgil van Dijk on his back, and then he needs to take a touch to look up and then find a pass. You can't, you put in the, like you said, it's a hospital ball. It's a hospital ball. So it's, it's like, it's teaching wrong things in the game. It's just, I don't know. Even on the defensive side, if you know that the guy is going to take a touch, and there's nothing open for him forward, you defend him different. You don't need to stay goal side of him. You just start sneaking to the side and stuff like that because he can't turn and beat you. So, like, it's, so, it's just... So name me a great player in world history. Uh, Andrew Clifton. <laughs> <laughs> why does he always Why do did that? you wear your red nose this morning? <laughs> <laughs> I started Clifton. with the theme music. Do, do, do. I think where you're going with this is if you look at the great, if you look at players that you love to watch, right? when they receive the ball, it's either quick speed of play, like they've moved it quickly because they've made a plan before they get it, or it's something deceptive. Like I was watching Cooper but, Chain. But does it only involve one or two touches? No, never. Remember, remember but, on a show that... But Messi that does. He plays within two touches oftentimes. But if he doesn't play within two touches, there is a fake attached, a body feint, a fake shot, something that puts the defender off by just a bit to create a little space to explode in the space that he wants to go and then he's beating him and he's off to the races I was talking this weekend about uh, one of the kids that plays for me he's been in a lot of the stuff that we've shared recently and every time Cooper receives the ball he receives it with a fake shot like he receives the ball with a fake shot which is devastating to a defender because it puts everybody on the other team off by just a small step because he's never going the direction he fakes that he's going. And it creates space for not only Cooper, but every single one of his teammates. And that is a product of me with that group over the last few months insisting in 1v1s or when we do 2v2s, which isn't super often, but or when we're scrimmaging at the end of the session, that it's one touch, two touch, or a fake and move within two. And Cooper's intuitively adopted that quicker than anybody else within this group. And it's going to put him, set him apart and enable him to go places in the game that other people aren't. Um, remember I showed you uh, a couple years ago a highlight from Sergio Busquets from Barcelona, which is known of, you know, the Barcelona tiki-taka, and he plays the six, and he's like, oh, he, he takes half touch it's on the It's a really ball. good point. He you watch his highlight, and he does Cruyff turns, L turns, Maradona turns. I mean, 
Puskas in uh, incredible amount of skill when he's under pressure. Yes, when he's not, and to speed up the play, one touch, two touch. But when he's under pressure, he's able to do those body feints, cut, cut, Cruyff, Eltern, Puskas, Maradona, quick to create the space, sometimes splitting two defenders. And, like, he has the skills. That's why in certain parts of the game, he's able to play one touch, two touch, because the players know if they go too close to him, what he's going to do, he's going to do a fake and move, and he's going to turn. So... It allows being able to perform those skills allow you to be able to play one touch to touch when it's needed and in a better way. So like when I watched his video and saw that amount of skill, I remember sending that to you, Andy, and I'm like, see, it, that that proves the point. The guy that everybody also talk reference about one touch to touch, look how many skills he does. It's it's just crazy. And and you know I'm not against one and two touch soccer. You know, that's something that has to be made clear because, you know, there's you know, one of the most, you know, exciting and prettiest sequences is when a whole bunch of players combine to make one and two touch passes and tear a defense apart, you know, and, you know, and, and a goal is the, you know, the end result of that move, you know, and, you know, it's something to be, you know, revered and admired. But we cannot take away the option to do a move early in a sequence. You know, so our one touch, two touch, faker move within two means that now you're not telling the player that you can't dribble. You're telling the player that dribbling is a viable option. But here's the key. And, and you know, if you get a chance, follow Todd Bean, the Tovo methodology. Because I'm a great fan of the Tovo emphasis on thinking the game ahead of time. I'm not a fan of the Rondo emphasis that the the Tovo philosophy has, because it takes away the faker move within two touches, and it doesn't condition the player to have all of the great options available to them that you need in order to dominate a defender, you know, and throw a real wrench into the defensive system of the other team. So, you know, we're in favor of one and two touch passing when it's the right choice, you know, but we have a condition that makes every player incredibly good at deceptively dribbling right from the first touch. So that when there isn't a chance to play a one or two touch pass that is going to penetrate, that is going to be positive, that's going to go forward, our players are in the mode of we go straight into whatever move it is. You know, whether that is a Cruyff turn, whether that's a double scissors, you know, whether that's a drag merit on a turn. You know, we go straight into that move because our conditions don't just allow for that to be an option. Our conditions teach, you know, our, our philosophy, we teach those options, you know. And this forces the player not only to scan the field looking for one or two touch passes, but to scan the immediate environment looking for a move that's going to be effective in creating space if that one or two touch pass isn't available. And it doesn't mean that the one or two touch pass is even the first choice. You know, because they're looking and they're scanning and they're saying, now, is this a great opportunity for a one or two touch pass? Or is the better opportunity to do a Maradona turn and, you know, beat this player and go to goal and score? So, you know, we have to scan more. We have to take into consideration more options sure. if we're playing one touch, two touch, fake a move within two touches. You know, and here's the thing. When I was coaching you, when I first introduced this condition, I was stopping the game constantly. 
mm-hmm. because a player would take the extra touch instead of doing a move. You know, um, you know, and they, they wouldn't be sticking to the, the faker move within two condition. Eventually, I didn't have to stop the game at all because you guys adjusted. You assimilated to the new conditions and you used one touch, two touch, faker move within two. And it didn't become a bone of contention at all in the end because you were so conditioned to scanning, thinking quickly and ripping that fake if you didn't have a one or two touch passing option or a shooting option, obviously. That's a fantastic segue to where I wanted to go next, which is from a, a coaching perspective, I think one of the biggest mistakes oftentimes we as coach makes is we watch the game on the weekend, we see something and we're like, okay, how can I run a session? How can I create a condition to address specifically what, what I saw this weekend that I didn't like that I want to change? And you address it, you, you get into your condition. The new condition is every time you make a pass, you have to explode five yards. My players weren't working off the ball too much. They were ball watching. Right. And you do that for that 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 next week's training. And then the next weekend, something else happens. So you change it to every time a defender gets goal side of you, it's a point. Right. And you're changing your conditions all the time. That's not the best approach to make it intuitive and condition it into players to where they're not thinking about it. They're just doing it. The best way to do it is to pick one. I suggest one touch, two touch, fake a move within two and make that a part of your your ethos. That Make that a part of your culture. Make that second nature to all of your players. Do it for a month. Do it for two months. Do it for, for three months. And then that's something your players have forever. Now it's something they have forever. And then introduce the next condition into their sessions, right? And now they're playing with two conditions. But the first one is so intuitive, they don't think about it. And if for some reason they get stuck in a funky spot and they take three touches, immediately the ball just turns over. The next guy goes without any, you know, any intervention from the coach and they're playing on to the next one. Um, and, and, I, and I think that that's the, the, the challenge that we as coaches have is thinking long-term instead of short-term. Don't think of remedies to the weekend, but think of, of, of institutionalizing or in making intuitive the conditions or the habits that we want in other players and slowly layer them in over the course of months and years. So what you're talking about is massed practice versus varied practice. And... Say that word, first word again, your accent took me. Massed, like block practice, where you you spend a number of practices in a row until you conquer the skill versus varied practice. And varied practice is when you jump around based on the last game you played and what your greatest weakness was as a team, for example. And uh, it's been proven categorically, you know, absolutely without doubt that Varied practice does not set the muscle memory in, does not actually teach permanently the skill. You know, and the only thing that teaches permanently a skill is the massed practice. And the old saying is, it's like riding a bicycle, right? Because, you know, you come back to riding a bicycle and you haven't ridden a bicycle for years and it's still there. And, you know, and it might not be there as perfectly as it was when you were a teenager and you're on a bike all the time, but you never forget how to ride a bicycle. You know? And so that's what we're talking about with mass practice versus varied practice. And what we've got to do is we've got to stick at learning a certain move for a number of weeks. And I'm saying maybe six weeks to two months. And we don't step off of that path. You know, I'm currently coaching a number of the, uh, the, the elite players in the Legends Club that have a potential to be national team players, uh, at least professional players. And what we're doing is we're going over and over and over right now the drag Maradona. And it's going to be a two-month process until every one of them is able to do the drag Maradona in the game circumstance. And then I know it's, it's taken. 
and it's going to be adopted. What's the point in me doing a session on the drag Maradona and then next week doing a session on the double scissors and then the next week doing a session on pancake flipping? It, you know, it's just not going to transfer to the game. Sure. You know, and so what we're doing is we're literally wasting our time. And most coaches do this. They look at the last game. They are identify the biggest weakness of their team and they work on the biggest weakness from the last game with their team and they achieve virtually absolutely zero in terms of permanent learning because they're not sticking with something until it is ingrained in the neuromuscular system. Until they don't think about it. That's exactly right. And like I remember going into high school, right? We'd been playing one touch, two touch, fake move, then two for years and going into high school or even going into college and playing it still in training because it, it was just part of my ethos that when I received the ball, I used to fake shot in the, in, the, in, in the receiving if I wanted to change direction or whatever whatever pattern that my neuromuscular system had, had memorized. Um, I, I do think, though, that I, I, wanna, I, I really want to address within this episode um, – there's a, I mean, there's a, a litany of various conditions that you can implement into the 2v2, right? And I just came up with one that I'd never used before or thought about before, but Philippe mentioned it early on, that I'm going to add to my team's conditions whenever the time's right, which isn't quite yet, but maybe sometime soon. And it's every time you release the ball, you've got to do a, what do you call it? A counter movement. A counter movement. Bef- uh, um, as you move off of the ball. You can't just overlap. You've got to start going one way and then overlap. You've got to start an overlap and then break out of the overlap. And without the counter movement, the ball turns over possession. Andy, I'm imagining as you were coaching our group and starting to really kind of dive into the 2v2 concept and really understand it and peel back the layers and see all that it could be capable of. I'm imagining you doing that and over game after game after game after game, watching our game individually develop going, I think this is an area the team's missing. What is a condition that I can come up with that I can institutionalize over, you know, in a mass practice or a block practice concept and make intuitive for them? I remember at one point, Perhaps I was the worst culprit, but ball watching defensively. She was always the worst culprit. <laughs> ball watching defensively, not tracking my player off the ball well enough. And so I remember you put in this condition, and boy, did I fail miserably for weeks. It took me forever of any time off the ball in the 2v2, if my runner, if the guy I was responsible for, literally just got goal side of me, it automatically counted as a goal. And like I was just like a rabid dog defensively. Like If there was a ball, I was going to chase it down and maul the guy to get it. And I wasn't very cerebral at times, especially as an 11, 12, 13-year-old. And so I must have given up so many goals in those first month of 2v2s when you instituted this condition because I was just chasing the ball. And the guy I was marking, Ryan Kaufman, probably just take a step north and all of a sudden he was like goal scored another one (laughs) and then it just kept repeating until I eventually started to think about it and figure out the importance of tracking off of the ball where did you come up with this concept of like man I can just keep instituting conditions that will create the type of players the habits within the players that I want well you know go into you know your situation uh, and this happens to a lot of youth players is you know kids get ball blind 
you know they you know they get focused on what they really want which is the round thing you know and you know they don't take into account the other things that should be you know um, immediately in the front of their mind which is staying goal side as a defender you know and you know you you would look at the ball hungrily you wanted it all the time and so you know you tended to take tended to take that fatal step towards the ball you know and somebody that was really lazy and intelligent like Hoffman you know, was always looking for the, you know, the way to find an easy point, you know, and so, you know, he just stepped behind you again and again and again. One, two, three, four, you yep. know, and, and score yep. goals. 100%. You know, until you adjusted, you know, and you became aware of the fact that you have to be defending goal side, you know, and you've got to be aware of tracking that player as they start to make runs into the space behind you, you know, and so, you know, and, but once again, none of this is rocket science. You know, as you see a problem, all you have to do is work through the, you know, the logical aspects of the problem and then say, okay, how do I introduce a condition that is meaningful enough to the players? Losing a goal being massively meaningful, of course, you know, because it's such a stupid way to give up a goal. And we became the team that not only was brilliant with the ball at our feet, but we became the team that would track players' goal side till the cows came home. You know, and we didn't give up stupid goals because our players were so disciplined at staying goal side, tracking the opposing players, you know, that, you know, we just didn't give the other team opportunities they would have had against teams that hadn't been forced to play in this manner. I, another one, too, that I, I think about often and used to drive me nuts as a player for you on the Dust Bowl field that we used to train on was um, as coaches, nothing's more frustrating when your kids just let off a fantastic shot. Keeper makes a save, gives up a rebound and nobody followed it. Right. Mm -hmm. You can hear all the parents on the sideline groaning about it like somebody follow it, follow it. Right. And so the I think the most common uh, response to that is nothing and just grumbling about it or a coach saying, you know what, we're going to do some drills specific to following shots we'll do them this week and then all of a sudden it'll be cured in reality that varied practice hasn't cured it one bit maybe for a minute they think about it but then it's not it's not intuitive it's not institutionalized within their neuromuscular uh, memory and so it doesn't happen and so I remember you instituting the condition of every time you or your teammate shot the ball you had to in your term your words frame the goal you had to explode toward the goal framing it waiting for a rebound if the ball hit the back of the net and your teammate just buried it from 30 yards out and you didn't explode and frame the goal the goal doesn't count no goal and i remember that one driving me nuts cuz Either I wouldn't frame the goal, right, so it wouldn't count, or I would beat a guy with a merit on a turn and just bury it, and my partner wasn't paying attention and didn't frame the goal. And was like, sorry, doesn't count. And, and, and we became really good as players because this was a five, six-year part of our youth youth career where when you would layer in a new condition which didn't happen every week it would happen every few months at best but when you were layer in a new condition we became really good at calling each other on it like no 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 Philippe that didn't count uh Ryan didn't explode after the pass or whatever it might be and none of us held it against the other guy because that's just what practice was and we wanted to finish at the top or definitely didn't want to finish the bottom of the ladder at the end of the at the end of the night for the 2v2s when you reported our scores and, and here's the interesting thing, is your team were five times national indoor championship winners. Five times. Despite my finishing credibility. <laughs> and, and it wasn't just because you were great dribblers and goal scorers. It was because, you know, we, when the ball was shot, and of course indoors, you know, surrounded by boards, 
you know, and when the ball was shot, there'd be rebounds off of the top boards, off of the side boards around the goal, and there would be lots of opportunities to score off of those rebounds. And we were always the team that not only took advantage of the rebound offensively, you know, which is relatively easy, isn't it? Because you're motivated to score. You're facing the target area. One of your teammates takes a shot and you attack for the rebound. But we also became the team that was incredibly good at denying the other team the rebound opportunities because in all those practices through the years, you know, you guys have denied goals because you didn't attack the rebound, you know, and you knew that in order to, you know, not give up a point as even as a defender, you had to attack all the rebounds, you know. And so so it was a, a condition that uh, worked incredibly good on both sides of the ball, defensively and offensively, and we became incredible rebounders, you know, in the, you know, I, I'm trying to think of the, uh, the guy whose daughter, you know, uh, Rodman, you know, when Trinity. he played, yeah, Trinity Robin, her dad, Dennis, was, you know, famous, you know, in the professional basketball world, you know, especially when he played for the Bulls, you know, as the most incredible rebounder, you know, defensively underneath the basket, you know, and he made his whole career out of being that guy. And he got away with murder in terms of his personal life because he'd miss training and go on a bender and go and get drunk and, you know, end up, you know, in a hotel room with you know some female, you know, and the whole practice he'd miss. Is he Brazilian? <laughs> That's what they do. <laughs> <Is he Brazilian>? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he'd wander into into the practice and the game, and and the the coach I forget his name now would give him a pass, you know, and and just play him, you know, after he'd been out on on a bender and the night before a game, and he'd always come up with the goods, you know, he was just incredible at rebounding. Well, you've got to have the mentality, and that forced you guys, when you were playing for me, to be incredible at defensive and offensive rebounding. You know, you were the Dennis Rodmans of youth soccer. You know, you weren't just great with the ball, able to beat Both on the sport. field and off, what he means, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you know, you weren't that limited player. I can't wait to tell my mom. Andy said I was the Dennis Rodman of youth soccer. <laughs> 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 he's got some tattoos in weird places, you know. And I bet he's got tattoos in places we can't see as well. Um, but uh, let's not go there, right? That sounds like insider <laughs> knowledge, but who am I? Who am I? But, but, you know, the point, let's get back to the point. The point is that, the, you know, a lot of people look at our philosophy and they say it's, you know, artsy-fartsy, you know, which is, you know, a, another way of saying it's all about creativity, but it's not about effectiveness, you know, and they couldn't be further from the truth because we introduce conditions into the two versus two process that focus on effectiveness as well as creativity. You know, and that's the key here is that we can make our conditioned play over time because we layer in, you know, more complicated conditions when the earlier conditions have been satisfied, conquered, you know, and are being used on a practice in, practice out basis, you know, and over time, over a period of a number of years, if we stick to the curriculum, which is really important, and we don't, you know, dive around and duck around and do different things. Don't varied coach. Yeah, exactly. You know, yep. you know, we, you know, this is kind of like being married to one woman, you know, being married to one woman, you have to really work at your relationship and you have to take care of all of the points of difference and, and find strategies where, you know, you can uh, agree to differ, you know, and not hate each other, you know, and, and love each other. And so, you know, what we do is we work with that in mind and we layer in these, these extra, you know, uh, opportunities to develop and they're endless, 
and condition the process, but without taking something away. So I work on a wall pass, but there's also a wall pass fake. Yep. So that we're not just working on the wall pass to condition, I pass to you, you pass it back, I make the run, I score. Because that's predictable to defenders. So, you know, and a lot of the time I pass to you and you fake to pass back to me and then you do a move, maybe a Cruyff turn, that sets up to look as though you're passing back to me. And the last minute you twist your foot and you go the other way behind the defender's other shoulder. Yep. And, and see, it's incredibly devastating when you do that. Because it's totally deceptive and the defender never knows whether you're going to croif them on that reception from your teammate or pass the ball quickly back to the running teammate. Because all of the pre-cues that the player gives are the same for the croif or for the playing of the ball. Until the croif is executed. Correct. You know, and so it's not until the execution occurs and the two consequences diametrically opposed. The, the first time touch, touch back to the runner goes the other direction completely from the fake to pass it to the runner and then last second go into the Cruyff. You know, and so it's absolutely devastating, especially if you can do a Cruyff turn to come out on your strong foot. But if there's one lesson that I think you take away from listening to this episode, it's that word conquered that you used until they conquer that specific condition because it's so easy for us as coaches to just varied coach and just switch from condition to condition. But it it kills, it kills development. I feel that coaches also get bored of doing the same thing over and over again. And they're like, oh, we got to try something new. We got to try something new. Oh, maybe they got it. No, you got to stay on it, stay on it. It's not getting it. Yes, Correct. if they're doing for a couple of weeks, they'll get it for those couple of weeks. If you don't keep doing, keep doing, keep doing, to until it ingrains in their minds and becomes second, second nature, he will pass two more weeks after they're not doing it and they're going to start, so, so start fading away. I got, I got to bring this vignette up. So just in the last couple of days, I've been in touch with the under-15 national team coach about J.C. Hackler, who plays for our club, because she's a phenom. And uh, J.C. scores these incredible goals where she uses a move to be one player, another move to be another player, another move to be another player, and scores a 30-yard shot. You know, and so she does this amazing stuff, and she does this again and again and again. And, but the point I'm getting to here is, is um, that her father used to play for me. So the culture's there. He's kind of, you know, in his mind, he's a Brazilian. You know, mm-hmm. you know, it's, and that's a huge compliment to Brazil because their culture is this way. You know, and so, you know, he, he sends me this highlight from um, regional league play. So this is national league regional play. And, and, and JC scores this incredible goal where she picks the ball up 75 yards from the opposing goal and she attacks a defender and, and we've taught her to set up the fake by going to one side you know, and then to do the fake to come out on the other side. So, so she goes to one side and she turns the defender's hips. She does this incredible Maradona turn at warp speed <coughs> you know, and, and then you know, she's still 35 yards goal from goal and she hits this rocket into the corner of the net from 35 yards. I wouldn't have even imagined trying to shoot from that distance at the same age. You know, and so, so she scores this incredible goal, you know, and I'm like, oh, wow. And then he reminds me of a goal that she scored in the regional championship on their way to winning the USYS national championship a few months ago. And he sends me the clip. No, actually, I researched back in my records because I still had the clip. And so I look at the clip 
And it's it's just weirdly, eerily similar. Exactly the same. I remember that too. It's, it's, exa- it's exactly the same. <laughs> it's, she got the ball 70 yards from goal and she attacked and she turned the defender, did a Maradona turn and hit the ball from 35 yards. And, and you know, this is the difference when you stay with something and you don't jump around. And when the conditions you oppose as a coach are the same, you know, you can actually precondition um, a, a repetition of the same move again and again and again. And, you know, and the move can be the most artistic, brilliant thing that you've ever seen. This goal, both of those goals, were way better than the goal that Maradona scored from his own half against England <laughs> in the 1986 World Cup. You know, way better in terms of you evaluate the finish. It was out of this world. You evaluate the move used during the run, the Maradona turn, out of this world. Mm-hmm. You know, and Maradona didn't do either of those two things in that run. Oh. And it was the goal of the century. My favorite thing about it is, is you think about JC and she pick, collects the ball inside her own half and she's dribbling and she starts dribbling at the, at the defender's right shoulder. And as soon as she turns those hips, she's like, oh, I've been here before. Right, I know. I know what Muscle happens memory. next. Muscle memory, right? right? Hits the hits the. It's actually not even a thought. I've been here before, but her body goes. I've been here before. Hits the Maradona turn and just unleashes a rocket. And that's what these conditions can do for our players. That's what mass or block practice can do for our players if we stick to it. If we focus on what we're doing being the right thing. And the other coach, you know, said. I'm going to recommend her to the national team, the other coach, <laughs> because he'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. You know, and, and this is now imagine what this does for a kid's confidence. Sure. You know, and so we, we talk about, you know, my second book is about legends for life. You know, this retools a player, <coughs> you know, and, you know, we talked in one episode about, you know, the tall poppy syndrome, you know, and this book's been written about it. And it's a fascinating subject of study. JC is not going to be a, a tall poppy. She's not going to give in to the pressure from other people to drag her down, you know, because we're aware of this. We talk with her about it. We talk with her parents about it, you know, and, you know, and they're very intelligent people. The whole family is on board with everything that we need to do in order to grow her self-concept and have her being totally okay with being that brave, creative leader that makes the big plays that hopefully in the future lead the USA to a World Cup winning, you know, position again, you know. Judging from the under, you know, twenties in Costa Rica, they need some help. They need some desperate help because <laughs> nobody could do a fraction of what JC Hackler can do on a on a game by game basis. Yep. Well, um, as we wrap up, guys, uh, as you're watching the Leeds Villa game this weekend, uh, imagine Andy he's sat up in the suite, um, uh, just just enjoying his first time at Ellen Road during and, a game. And and I want to say a tribute. Thank you, Loose Wayne. You know who's got these tickets and you know owns you know, the rights to these seats in the suite for treating me to this opportunity. Lou was a tank commander in the British Army, you know, and, you know, I don't know Lou, but, you know, we're mutual friends, really good friends with Andrew Pinder, who I also want to thank, thank for putting me in touch with, with Lou. You know, the two of them have given me an opportunity to live Once my in a dream. lifetime. Once, Once in, in a, a lifetime. lifetime. I've never seen Leeds play before, despite being a rabid... Well, I saw them play in London against Chelsea. Never seen them play at Elland Road at home before. So this is a chance to go to, literally, the hallowed ground. You know, yeah. this this is my Bethlehem. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then as you go back and re-listen to episode two about Ashington, England, 
Andy will be walking those streets uh, probably late next week, and um, we're eager next episode recording to hear how Ellen Road was in person and how Ashington, England felt as you walked those streets of Bobby and Jack Charlton. Who was the other fellow? Jimmy Adamson, Jimmy Adamson and Jackie Milburn, who was a centre striker for England, as well as a host of others that played in the old English First Division, what good. is now the EPL. Good stuff. So you know the next episode will be great as well. Andy, Philippe, thank you so much. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks, thank guys. You. See Great ya. job.